The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. approach to tackling coronavirus is to prepare for the worst and work for the best. You need a totally different style of leadership. It's not enough to have a plan. You need to be testing, testing, testing. Britain and the EU, do they want to be seen as locking horns on an issue such as a no-deal Brexit when the economy is going to be suffering and people's lives are going to be facing so much disruption? You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. A very good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. And today we're going to be talking about a number of issues, not least, of course, how Parliament is functioning in this new setup. Ministers are expected to face further questions today over their decision to end virtual voting in the House of Commons. And all this comes after the business secretary appeared, well, visibly ill in the chamber yesterday. Alok Sharma is now self-isolating and has been tested for the virus. Parliamentary officials say additional cleaning of the chamber has taken place since. Meanwhile, The Guardian newspaper has an exclusive on the government's push to reopen primary schools in England. The figures show that in large parts of the northeast of England, not a single primary school opened to more pupils on Monday, the government's target date for reopening after the 10-week lockdown. Across England, a National Education Union poll of members suggested that 44% of schools decided against admitting more pupils on Monday, contrary to government expectations. And one of the MPs critical, of course, of the opening of Parliament is joining us now, Robert Halfen, Conservative MP for Harlow and Chair of the Education Select Committee. We'll also, of course, be talking about education with him in just a moment. Robert, welcome to the programme. Thank you for being with us. Let me ask you, first of all, about the plan to potentially allow MPs to vote by swiping their passes on electronic readers. Would that work, do you think? Well, to be clear, I do want Parliament to open. I think that is important to set an example to the nation. If we're asking schools to go back and some workers to go back, it's right that uh, Parliament goes back in a phased uh, manner. The original beef was that they were saying to MPs who were shielding, self-isolating or unwell, that they would not be allowed the vote. And that's why I mounted a campaign. I'm very pleased that the leader of the House, Jacob Rees-Mogg, announced yesterday, uh, as did the Prime Minister, that they had changed their minds on that and that there would be proxy voting for MPs. And my constituency, because I'm a shielded person, my constituency neighbour, who I share an office with, Julie Marson, she is going to uh, vote on my behalf. Mm, okay. Um, I, I think that, you know, people um, who work in other fields might find it rather baffling, you know, at the bizarre queue of MPs that snaked around the, the green outside of Parliament um, when it reopened this week. Why has it been so difficult? And also, given the number of weeks that Parliament has had to plan, why has it taken so long to come to some kind of sensible arrangement? Well, I did think looking at that queue, it was worse than a queue for McDonald's coming out of lockdown. And there was no Big Mac at the end either, sadly. Um, it looked uh, um, bizarre. But uh, as I understand it, there are going to be different arrangements made from next week. And maybe the pass swiping option will be an answer. I think that is pretty 
sensible. Um, but the key point uh, was that um, all MPs should have the vote. No MP should be disenfranchised. And to credit the government, at least they moved on that important point. So, Robert, is it possible then to keep Parliament going in this way, especially now at a time when it is so important for there to be scrutiny over over what the government is doing uh, with the pandemic, uh, post-pandemic, at a time really where the consensus over what we're doing with the coronavirus is really broken down? I think it is important to keep Parliament going because we can't exactly say to schools and factories um, uh, to say, actually, yeah, you keep going, but Parliament's going to shut down completely. I thought it was working quite well that there was a few MPs in the chamber maintaining social distancing with MPs able to participate online. And the government seemed to have gone back to that proposal because MPs were not able to come and will be um, um, able now to participate in debate and to vote uh, by proxy. But it should be in a phased and deliberative manner. There shouldn't be too many MPs in the chamber. Um, I genuinely think the MP who joined the demonstration yesterday, I, I understand why people want to demonstrate as a tragic issue, but to say I'm proudly ignoring social distance measures, uh, which is what Barry Garner did, is a terrible example to set to the rest of the country. But in Parliament, um, MPs need to do exactly what Public Health England and the medical officer has advised. Mm-hmm. But I think it is important that the that Parliament is open. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, uh, so then on the issue of education, uh, the Guardian um, newspaper story, doesn't it show that schools um, were actually open too early? Uh, no, I think it's inevitable that uh, some schools have taken longer to open and that people are cautious in, in certain areas of the country. Parents are worried, teachers are worried. But I do think it's right that I think the government got it right. The schools need to open. We need to get our children back to school as soon as possible. All the studies from the World Health Organization, uh, 22 EU countries, the chief medical officer in the UK has said that it's a minimal risk and it's safe to go back to school. The children do not uh, transmit um, the virus. And there's other risks. So it isn't just the risk Mm. of the coronavirus. There are huge risks to children not learning, uh, potentially a decade of educational poverty, safeguarding crises with children from disadvantaged backgrounds maybe not learning and joining county gangs suffering problems at home whether it's domestic abuse or mm-hmm. stress from families who may have yeah. lost their jobs or facing more with their finances. you have to weigh all these things up and we you know something like uh, um 85 percent of disadvantaged children have not been learning at school over the past few weeks and this could destroy their life chances for years to come and that's why we need a phased and cautious approach to getting the children back in school but sooner than later. Yes and I'm sure that parents up and down the land will um, absolutely understand the difficult um, balance um, that, that needs to be struck here. Having said that we simply don't know what the picture is locally or indeed whether it's actually true that children don't transmit at the rate that we think uh, because we don't have the track the trace system in place um, is then is it not better to have a local more localized approach well we do um, and we do have the scientific um, evidence because there's been studies all over the world um, from the World Health Organization and others and that is very important because um, that sort of suggests that the risk is low and the government have said that any teacher pupil support staff will have access to testing, uh, tracking and tracing. And that's also important. Um, 
Mm. I do believe that it needs to be communicated better to um, the education, to schools, and I also think they need to be clear about PPE. But the principle of children going back to school so they don't ruin their life chances for many years to come is uh, very important. And I hope very much that the schools open, because in the areas you talk about, that the schools have remained shut, in those areas predominantly, uh, those schools often have a lot of problems and the um, performance of disadvantaged children is is uh, uh, is way behind the educational yeah. attainment of those children. Yeah, unfortunately, perhaps the trust is not there on the part of parents. We, we, we don't know exactly to actually send pupils back. There's also talk, of course, of summer camps. Will there be extra funding to help children to uh, go perhaps to these summer camps or for indeed schools to be extended by a week or two? I hope so, because I've been campaigning for that for some time. I think we need a catch-up programme for these children um, to help them. I've worked with a number of charities, educational charities, who've set out how they can do it. I mean, just, for example, a few hours um, a week going on for 12 weeks can uh, help those children advance by often five months or improve their grades by up to a half. That could make a huge difference. But it isn't just uh, summer camps for education. There has to be mentoring and... Uh, to, uh, sorry, mentoring and well-being and pastoral care as well, because a lot of these children may have suffered mental health difficulties. They're going to need reorientation, and it will make a, a big difference if they, if they can get the pastoral care alongside the extra English and maths that they might need. Yeah, absolutely. Um, also, the CEO of Teach First has talked about the provision um, being extended or the need for it to be extended well beyond 2020. I mean, you've pointed out to the long-term you know uh, issues um of missing out on school surely there will need to be funding for some time there will there will be there'll need to be a catch-up premium um, separate from the pupil premium designed specifically to help these left behind pupils who've not been learning who have been suffering uh, during the lockdown and this should be a permanent program and what i think is organizations like teach first and the uh, tutors trust and action tutoring many other organisations should uh, work be, be given support by the government with the catch-up premium to work closely with the schools to identify pupil, children and pupils who need the most help and offer them a catch-up programme. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. So what is making news in the world of politics? Well, 13 people have been arrested in London as thousands took to the streets yesterday for a Black Lives Matter demonstration. There were scuffles between police and protesters outside the gates to uh, 10 Downing Street yesterday. Objects were thrown and officers at one point drew their batons. The rally was in response, of course, to the death of George Floyd in police custody in the United States. Uh, Roger, I think it's uh, interesting having said that, that the demonstration was reasonably large in 
London, but none of the big newspapers uh, in the UK actually chose to lead on images of that. It was all about Madeleine McCann um, and uh, the, the story there. A lot of people sort of drawing some conclusions from that. Yeah, well, that's and one of the stories that they didn't perhaps pick up on was the Labour MP who's been criticised for breaking social distancing guidelines by attending the protest. Barry Gardner told his Twitter followers he was coming out of lockdown to go to yesterday's Black Lives Matter demonstration in Westminster. The Northern Ireland Secretary, Brandon Lewis, says he should have obeyed the rules. More than a little bit surprised to see a, a Member of Parliament doing that, parading it in that sort of format on Twitter. And I will say to Barry Gardner, as I would to anybody else, we've all got to use our own good common sense, follow the guidelines, take that responsibility... Well, of course, that wasn't lost, having said that, Roger, on the guest that we just had on a few moments ago, Robert Halfen, the Conservative MP. He was also highly critical uh, of what Barry Gardner did by joining the protests. Uh, but in terms of other news, uh, let's talk a bit about the services industry in the UK, because a new report out from the UK and a changing Europe says that the services industry is being left out of the country's post-Brexit trade negotiations. Services, of course, make up 80% of the country's economy and about 30 million jobs and yet the government has paid uh, the sector little attention according to this research by the think tank. The EU is the primary destination for Britain's services exports and the single market has allowed greater cross-border trade than is typical of free trade agreements so a lot of concerns about what happens come next year. Indeed. Well, one of the key issues for the government in dealing with a virus crisis has been and will be how to pay for it. The eye-watering amounts being spent on paying the uh, quarter of a, the workforce, the wages of a quarter of the workforce at the moment under the furlough scheme and the realisation of how much tax revenue has been lost by shutting down the economy mean that something has got to give in the nation's finances. And there have been suggestions in the newspapers over the last week that the defence budget is one of the main areas where the axe could fall. Well, joining us now, I'm very pleased to say is Professor Malcolm Chalmers, who's Deputy Director General of RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute. Professor Chalmers, thank you so much for being with us. Mm, let's, my pleasure. Let's text, take you know, the bull by the horns, as it were. Do you think defence is the most obvious place where there are going to be cuts? No, I don't think it's the most uh, obvious place at all. I think the problem is that uh, we're now in a period where, absolutely rightly, the government is spending a lot of resource, uh, both directly in terms of coping with the pandemic and in health and social care, but also <clears throat> enormous amounts being spent uh, on uh, keeping people in employment. Uh, and at some stage, the bill for that and the bill for the recession that most people think is going to come uh, will have to be paid. Now, some of that will be paid by borrowing, but certainly many economists believe that we're now heading into a period uh, of slower growth uh, and uh, significant fiscal challenges for the government, a, a growing uh, uh, mm. government uh, deficit. Now, there are different ways in which that government deficit can be closed and, and, and financed, uh, assuming that you can't do it all by borrowing. You have to have some mixture of of tax rises and spending cuts. And uh, I think that the defence spending discussion it should be seen in that broader context uh, rather than in isolation to the extent that the government is prepared to put most of the burden of uh, tackling the fiscal crisis on uh, tax rises uh, then there will be less pressure on public spending to the extent that there's pressure on public spending then defense 
I suspect uh, from everything we hear from the government will not be exempt from that pressure. It will be under pressure to, to make okay. its contribution to... OK, so how, what, in terms of cuts, what might we expect then go, going forwards? I mean, obviously, borrowing costs for the government are extremely low, so this issue may get pushed out. And there's also then the counter um, viewpoint, which is um, that austerity, you know, it seems as if the Conservative Party and certainly opposition parties don't want to return to the decade of austerity that we saw. So, you know, there are pressures on many sides here. What do you think is could be uh, cut? How much might be cut from, from defence? Well, I think you're absolutely right to draw that parallel to the 2010 experience uh, where most of the burden of, of austerity went on spending cuts rather than tax rises. And and there was a significant cut of around 8% in real terms in defence spending over a five-year period. And I think today that's the worst case for for defence, again, a, a, a reduction of, of that magnitude, which would actually still allow the UK to meet NATO's 2% of GDP spending target, which is very important in terms of our credibility with our allies. Uh, but the, how would those cuts be made? Very hard very hard to do, I think. Uh, and I think there would be a real trade-off between well, investing in those, uh, protecting those bits of the defence budget, which are really about coping with new challenges, cyber, space, uh, new sophisticated Russian missiles and so on, which may be growing in concern over the next decade and preserving some of those totemic uh, capabilities, which have a, a great symbolism in terms of the number of ships we have, the number of troops we have and so on. Well, well, let me, Quantity let me, versus quality, I think there'll be a big yeah, deal. Let me pick up on that point, that very point, actually, because, I mean, the people who said to me, when, frankly, isn't a more modern defence system, less reliant on high-cost items like, you know, you talk about totemic items, aircraft carriers, etc., and fr- more reliant on, well, someone said, friendly computer hackers. A bunch of them would be actually money, less money and better spent. Well, the reality is uh, you need you need a bit of both, uh, and uh, there's no significant power in the world which relies entirely on computer hackers for for its defence. Uh, but it's an increasingly important part, and I think we are talking about over time shifting the balance. And I think it's also true that what matters for defence in the 2020s uh, may change in the 2030s and beyond. And one of the problems in defence planning, and often you have to be making decisions now, which will influence what you've got in 10, 15 years' time. In this defence review, when it comes, there'll be a lot of discussion about putting some serious money into developing a new combat aircraft, which won't come into service until after 2030, so well past this decade. Mm. Uh, And should that be an aircraft? Should it be a network of drones? Uh, How far should it have cyber offensive capability, electronic warfare capability? How far should it have space? a space element. All those decisions have to be made, but within a budget that I think is going to be more constrained. I think before this crisis, uh, my prediction was that the defence budget would probably get a small real terms increase each year over the next five years, and that now seems very optimistic. So they're going to have to make some much harder decisions about priorities, which are partly about what's important to the UK, how far is NATO really the primary driver of defence capability and how far do we want to maintain an ability to, to intervene in, in the wider world, in yeah. the Middle East and so on. So all those big questions need to be answered. 
those are big questions. And also, of course, in the context of two massive issues, both uh, Brexit um, and the UK leaving uh, the EU, but then also China and the increasingly, um, you know, tense and acrimonious um, exchanges between China and, and Western countries, including the UK. Um, there is going to be meant to be potentially this this big review next year of uh, of the MOD um, and potential for a big change in direction. Do you think that defence requirements are going to change because of Brexit and China now? I think they will. And I think in the, the, the big integrated review, which you, you refer to, was due to take place this summer. It's now been postponed largely because of the pandemic. But I think... think that's actually a good thing, given the enormous degree of uncertainty we have, not only about how the pandemic plays out, we're really just at the beginning of the pandemic crisis as an international phenomenon. Rates of infection are still going up in many parts of the world, including Russia. Uh, but also, I think uh, you, you're absolutely right. How does that affect China's rise and the, the greater rivalry between the US and China, but also between China and a broader group of countries, how, how, how does that play out? And I think the other uncertainty we all have is uh, who will win the American presidential election? I think the uh, second Trump term uh, will, I think, on all the, uh, all, everything we've seen so far, it could, could send America in an even more nationalist American first direction, which clearly has implications for us, uh, uh, given that the United States is our primary military ally on whom we, we depend for so much. So Professor, just that's, a, that's an uncertainty. A review next year will, will can, can, be take, can take place uh, when we know. Professor, very briefly, if you, if, if, if you would, I mean, just what about the in defence industry here? Because, I mean, in a way, reviving the economy, could, it could get a boost from simply more investment in the defence industry. It could indeed. And I think the, uh, one of the dilemmas defence decision makers have always had and continue to have is the extent to which you use the defence budget to support a British defence industry and favour domestic procurement uh, compared with procurement of weapon systems and new aircraft and so on from the United States primarily but also from other allied countries and again and again we see cases where the pressure often from the armed forces is to buy uh, imported kit, F-35 aircraft is a good example, the, uh, the new Orion maritime patrol aircraft. Again, systems which have been developed at American expense, which we're buying more or less off the shelf from them. But, but uh, the more you do that, the less opportunities there are for Indeed. domestic producers of, of that equipment. So that's a real dilemma. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.